Welcome to The Gabby Ree Show, where we break down the complex worlds of health, fitness, family, business, and relationships with the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Gabby Reese, and I'm here to simplify these topics and give you practical takeaways that you can start using today. We all know that living a healthy, balanced life isn't always easy. Let's try working on managing life a little better and have some fun along the way. Because after all, life is just one big experiment and we're all doing our best. Anyone who has what they think is a chronic lifelong intestinal problem, my very, very strong advice is to really scrutinize your diet. Try something for a week. The fact is, usually it's some kind of plant matter that they're responding negatively to. And that the more they are careful with their plants, especially grains to varying degrees, and then maybe certain, certain kinds of vegetables, the degree to which they're careful with those um, noxious agents, that will directly improve the gut health. The body can recover remarkably quickly, especially the intestines. Those cells grow so quickly, for better and for worse. For worse, that's one of the reasons why gut-related cancers, like colon cancer, is one of the most common, because those are cells that just want to grow. But on the good side, these are cells that can, if there's any kind of damage, like a scab on the intestine, like through ulcerative colitis, it can heal in just in days. The intestines just recover so quickly. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Benjamin Bickman. Ben has been on the show before. His last book called Why We Get Sick was out. He's also an associate professor at BYU. He got his PhD in bioenergetics, and his whole thing now is to understand the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones in mitochondrial function. It sounds confusing. I know it sounds like a lot. But actually, this conversation, Ben has the huge capacity because he's a, he's a teacher, he's an educator, and he understands the area so well to explain, yes, managing our glucose and understanding what things spike our glucose is healthy and understanding you know, what things we're not able to recover from, but that how we still have to understand that insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity is a very separate thing from glucose because your glucose could be regular or low but your insulin sensitivity might be low. So it's not always like, hey, my glucose is in check and my insulin sensitivity is where it should be. So he breaks this down in a very easy way and why the dangers of chronic inflammation, what they do to wreak havoc on our systems, whether you're male or female or in your 20s, or you're a premenopausal woman and you decide you're gonna eat a late meal with maybe a little bit of dessert after and what that can do to you when it's bedtime. So I have always loved talking to Ben, but I, I felt like this conversation had so many takeaways regardless of what your objective is. So if you're looking to be a high performance person also in a physical practice, so whether you're an athlete or a weekend warrior, or you're somebody who's like, listen, I'm under it, I'm busy, I'm working, I have a lot going on, and I am really trying to do the best I can to be healthy please just tell me things to look out for or practices to put in place that are realistic for somebody living like that. So I hope you enjoy. We've talked before and I, I really always appreciate and learn so much from you, but I'd like to maybe spend some time 
because you know we hear I've I, what I'm really learning doing these conversations is like we hear all these terms, so we all think we actually know what everything means. And even myself, I'm like, but do you really know what that means? Like someone's like the other day we were talking about ketones. They're like, yes, but what are ketones? And I was like, no, that's so interesting. So I like to maybe just sort of start with talking about inflammation, chronic inflammation, what it is. Love it. Talk about gut. And when we talk about the gut and gut health, what indicates good gut health? And, you know, mm-hmm. what is gut health? And then I would be remiss not to, of course, talk to you about insulin sensitivity because this is, yeah, this is just, it's so important. And I feel like this notion of health gets so complicated for people. And I feel like if we dealt with chronic inflammation, if we dealt with somehow having a microbiome that seems is working pretty well, if our mitochondrial function was working, working well, and we were insulin sev- sensitive, we would most likely get to avoid a lot of hassles. Yeah, no, these are, so yeah, Gabby, those are all topics I can very comfortably speak on. The one, the only one that gets a little bit into a black box gut. is microbiome, yeah. is microbiome, yeah, gut. Now, while it is difficult for me to speak with authority on the microbiome, because I think people should be very careful with anyone who speaks with too much authority, because it is so poorly known, uh, so poorly understood, what I am more familiar with is the leakiness of the gut, which is a real thing, the degree to which the gut isn't quite the integrity or the integral or high fidelity sort of filter that it normally is, that it's now letting through too much. That's something that is relevant in in a, in a lot of ways, but also with inflammation, which is something we can, you know, those two topics merge together. And then even going on to metabolism with insulin resistance, that's very influenced by um, inflammation. Okay. So, Let's just start with when we're talking about chronic inflammation. I think, you know, people understand on some level, inflammation has its benefits, but what really kicks our butt is chronic inflammation. And, and maybe we can start there and also sort of talk about what are the things that contribute to that, mm-hmm. indications of that. So when we knew, you know, when we hear about chronic inflammation, maybe we could, we could just gain clarity and explain like, it, it's like stress. Stress is good, but not stress all the time. Inflammation is sort of like that. There is good inflammation we know from exercise and all kinds of things. So maybe you could carve out really clearly just when you're talking about chronic inflammation and what mm-hmm. the, and, and actually what are some of the things that can do to your, your health, your body? Right, right. Yeah, I, I like that you framed that carefully, which is to say, it is, it is often in pop culture that we speak about inflammation as this uniform evil. But if it weren't for inflammation, we would have no immune system and we would have no ability to even heal from whether it's something as benign as a workout or something as harmful as a scratch. We wouldn't be able to recover. All of that is, is, is uh, dependent on inflammation. Now, as you note, when inflammation is chronic, it's become a problem. In these instances that we mentioned where inflammation is physiological, it, it turns on and then it turns off. It had its purpose and then it fulfilled its purpose and then it receded into the background. This is an area that is of remarkable interest to me and I love speaking about it because it is, it is literally what got me in, interested in fat tissue and obesity mm-hmm. in the very earliest stages of my academic scientific career. Uh, when I was a master's student, 
this was in the early 2000s, I stumbled across a paper that identified that that referred to this phenomenon, which was new at the time, called subclinical chronic inflammation. And that's very that's exactly what we're speaking about. Where chronic is, of course, meaning it's long term, and then subclinical being that it is something that is not dramatic. You know, you don't have a fever, you're not groaning in your bed, but there is it's it's detectable at a clinical level, but it's not manifesting with symptoms, and so it's subclinical in that regard. You know, someone's not presenting to the emergency room with a with a you know an inf- inflammation problem. Mm-hmm. But what was implicated in this study, and part of the reason it fascinated me so much is because they were implicating this subclinical chronic inflammation as this union between the immune system and the metabolic system. And the implication being, which is one that still stands, this was the connection where having too much fat begins to compromise our metabolic health. It was because of the inflammation. So the, subclin- the, sub- the subclinical chronic inflammation is a-, is a real thing. And indeed, it's probably quite a common thing. The origins of this well, let me just define how we would even identify it. This is one of the reasons why I'm such an advocate of people getting their C-reactive protein measured, CRP. People probably have already, I wouldn't be surprised if many of your listeners have already had this measured on a blood test. So C-reactive protein or CRP, sometimes it's identified as HSCRP for high sensitivity C-reactive protein, but that is a really good indicator of your inflammation and heart disease risk because inflammation is so connected to heart disease. So by all means, look at your CRP or ask to get your CRP measured the next time you have a blood test. But to not to well, sort of shift the topic. Wait, of, before, well, please. sorry, when you're saying this, like, you know how I hear this a lot. People say, oh, your doctor kind of rolls their eyes or whatever. This is something that I think is a really reasonable thing for people to ask for. And if your doctor mm-hmm. gives you a hard time, why would they give you a hard time if you're asking for that? Because I, I find with medicine, they go, okay, here's normal range. And really, it's almost like you're already heading in the direction for a problem. And it's like, how do you catch things before the normal range in our blood work? Do you think a lot of physicians are, you know, make that easy to ask for those kinds of tests? Because I, you know, you, you hear people really say like doctors, they can, and then I don't know that they mean to, but they can intimidate people. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, that latter part is certainly true. It is a sad f- reality that the more credentials a person gets, the more unpleasant they tend to become. And and physicians seem to do that a little better than most. I, I think with when it comes to CRP, if there's any kind of resistance, it's it would probably be born from the fact that inflammation, as is just a term, has become so pop culture. Yeah that it, it's 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 easy to roll your eyes at because people people assign they 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 blame inflammation for every problem and they'll have every solution to improve your inflammation when they don't really understand it and the problem they're speaking about has nothing to do with inflammation um, very very commonly mm. so i can i can appreciate the fact that it's it's sometimes difficult to care about it because you hear about it so much there's so much noise that it's easy to become deaf to it but CRP is commonly measured, in fact, to the point that more often, uh, I would say just as often as not these days, if you've gone in for an annual wellness visit, you probably had your CRP measured. It's become much more commonplace and much more accepted, all, all for, for the benefit of the individual who's looking at their, their labs. 
And most of that is because of it being such a risk factor for a heart attack, where CRP can better predict a heart attack than someone's cholesterol levels, as much as we obsess over cholesterol. We won't get into cholesterol today so much. Yeah. I mean, I find it amazing that we had a solid 40 plus years really obsessing about cholesterol when there were some really much more important factors. And oh, yeah. And we can even talk about it today with people and they still will be like, oh yeah, and I'm, I have high cholesterol and I'm going to go on this medication. It's like, it's, it still blows my mind how we get indoctrinated with some of these beliefs for whatever reasons, whether it's a war with the sugar business, who knows, you know, like I don't know, or fat, but that it's, it's that people really, once they hear something, it's so hard for them to change their mind and the measurements. I mean, we've even seen that during COVID, but Okay, so let's get back to um, the sort of inflammation and, and good and bad. So you, you talk about we can mm-hmm. take this test. And let's say I go in, I get my test, and they go, oh, wow, your, your markers are indicating that you have either you know, high inflammation, chronic inflammation. Really quickly, just because we're here, there's so much information. What would you do? What would be mm. some of the first steps, really primary steps to say, okay, I want to get on top of this? I submit that there are two likely causes of someone having inflammation that is higher than it should be. So an elevated CRP, one would be the environment and one would be their fat tissue. And, and that brings me, I'm going to end on that one in this answer because it's the one that is, is kind of a bigger idea. And it's one that I'm so enamored with because that is, again, literally what got me on the path that I'm still currently on as a scientist. I was so, my mind was so blown when I read that first paper. So the first one, the environment, it's not uncommon for someone to have a sensitivity to something that they're exposed to and, and knowing, uh, willingly exposing themselves to it, whatever it may be. So on, on an obvious end of this, this could be something like the person has, say, a gluten sensitivity and, and they don't know it or they do know it. Um, but if you are eating something I mean, that is the nature of like an allergic reaction where the immune system is responding to something in an exaggerated way that it has no reason to need to respond to. Like someone who has hay fever, well, there's nothing inherently harmful or pathogenic about these little particles in the air that they're breathing in. Indeed, the average individual doesn't respond to them at all. There's nothing inherently pathogenic about gluten. This is something that's been in our diet for a thousand years now, um, but there's more of it now and a lot more of sure. it. But people, there are people who respond to this and are sensitive to it for, for reasons that make no sense. This is the nature of a hypersensitivity, which is a more, which is a kind of official way of, of describing like kind of an allergic reaction. So it's possible the person is, is responding to something in their environment that they just don't know. They're breathing it in, um, when it, say it is, it's diesel exhaust particles or a lot of wood burning smoke, we know that will increase inflammation or, or of course, cigarette smoke and do, don't even get me started on vaping. Vaping is tremendously harmful to the airway, to the lungs. And we are going to see just a record number of, of uh, lung failure and lung complications in young people because of how common vaping has become. But all of those promote inflammation when when you breathe something in or when you swallow something and your intestines are responding to it. And speaking of intestines, just very, very briefly, 
this is where um, the integrity of the intestinal barrier comes in, where some things like, for example, seed oils, polyunsaturated fats from seed oils like soybean oil, there is a very, very well done study that looked at the, the barrier between the cells. Uh, so very briefly, when, when people speak about leaky gut, it's because the space between the cells has gapped open. Normally, if something is coming from intestine, from the tube of the intestine into the bloodstream, it, um, normally it goes through a cell. So the cell itself, the palm of my hand, the cell itself is the filter. It will pull something in or recognize something in the intestines and say, okay, you can come in. You, you meet the requirements, you can come in. And so the cell will pull it in and then it will release it out into the bloodstream. So the cell itself is the filter. Some things will pass by, want to come into this elite club of the intestinal epithelium, and the cell will say, nope, you don't have a pass, you can't come in. And it will continue on through the intestines to be excreted from the body. But the problem is when this thing that wants to get in says, well, forget you, I'm not even going to try to get into the club through here, I'm going to go in through the back door. And some molecules will increase the gap between cells. And polyunsaturated fats, particularly linoleic acid, which is the main fat in things like these so-called vegetable oils, like soybean oil or canola oil, it will increase the gap between cells. And as these things get in, they will induce inflammation in the body. This is very, very well established. And so the more we can have the gut cells be very tightly aligned, no gaps, nothing can leak through it then the better off the gut will be and the less inflammation a person will have. And wouldn't you know it, even though we kind of said we wouldn't get into it and I won't get into it any more than this, saturated fats actually tighten up the barrier between cells. These so-called gap junctions, polyunsaturated fats um, will increase the gap, saturated fats will tighten the gap. And of course, this is the fat that we've been vilifying for decades now. So <laughs> I, when it comes to inflammation, Please. Oh, sorry. You know, the thing I, I'm just really, again, because now I'm, I swear my, I wanted to do a show and just called it solutions, right? Because people, you get the information. It's like, okay, now what do I do? So let's say we hear the yeah. term leaky gut. So is that that you're a, allergic to the things that you've been consuming? And that is the thing that really activates the reaction. And by eliminating those for a very long period of time, we can not only heal that area. So for example, let's say somebody didn't know about these harmful oils and they've been hearing about the hateful eight for the last year or so. And they go, okay, I've really tried to eliminate these from my everyday diet. Through time, will the gut heal? And the other part of that question is, let's say given all things are working well. Okay. I know it's a very complex area of the body with a lot of different elements, but let, let's say we're working on, um, you know, healing these, the gut from these foods or these, these oils. If I today I'm sitting here and my gut's in pretty good shape and I consume something with that oil, that in a one-time kind of intake, isn't going to hammer my gut. Don't you, can the body handle it a little, like a little bit, or is it a no-go right from the beginning? Yeah, that, that's a good question. You mentioned, the, you mentioned the two things that I, I think are valuable to address. You'd mentioned sort of an allergic response. Yeah. So I would, I would like to say there's, on one hand, there is 
that your immune system is responding in a way that it shouldn't to something, mm -hmm. and that's compromising your gut integrity, or it's just the very thing itself, there's no getting around it. It's, that, it's just that directly uh, harmful. So on one hand, there's no question that things like Crohn's disease or, or um, ulcerative colitis, both of those are problems where the integrity of the gut just gets destroyed. And those can be, those are, if you will, an allergic reaction, even though we, we refer to them just as autoimmune problems, but there is absolutely a dietary trigger to them. Um, that doesn't mean that those ideas are mutually exclusive. They're autoimmune problems, but almost every autoimmune problem has a dietary trigger. And that's why you see people who appear to have catastrophic ulcerative colitis, for example, destroying the integrity of the intestine, the large intestine, and yet they severely change their diet and they have no more problems and, and they last that way for a decade. You know? So those are people who clearly are having this immune response to something they're eating that wouldn't affect someone else. Right. And, and gluten would certainly be one of those triggers. Um, now, on the other hand, we have things like linoleic acid, which just has been shown cut and dry to open up gap junctions between the epithelial cells of the intestine and then saturated fats to close them. So when it comes to the former, these allergic reaction autoimmune type problems, that's where I think we really say to what degree are we healing the gut. I don't know of studies that have, unfortunately, I, for better and for worse, I only want to say something if I can think of a study and cite it. I'm unaware of any evidence that has taken people, other than one case study um, that was published by, um, with other authors, Nick, Nick Norwitz is his name, um, one case study documenting the improvement in a patient with, with very, very debilitating ulcerative colitis and the total resolution of the ulcerative colitis in a matter of weeks. So that is certainly very, very encouraging. On the other hand, well, that sounds kind of overly negative. Similarly, where you have someone who has been consuming um, linoleic acid, and that has been shown to increase the gap, and saturated fat closes it, that is nothing nearly as physically catastrophic as, some, as the autoimmune problems. That would be something where if someone's been indulging in some seed oils, often unintentionally and unknowingly, yeah. there's nothing that has inherently wrecked the intestine. Those cells are there and they're ready to close back up. I would suspect, and I am, I am speculating, that that would get tightened up within just you know, a day or you know, hours. You eat something bad and it opens, you eat something good and it, it seals back yeah. up. But I am speculating, there's no evidence to show the, the timing or the temporality of this, to what degree is the damage settled in, to what degree or how rapidly do you resolve it? Again, in the former, with autoimmune problems, there's evidence to suggest it's just a few weeks. Yeah. In the latter, I would say it's on the matter of hours, um, where you, you indulge in this, you eat that, you opened it, you closed it, and you're tightened back up again. I feel that this is so important because people, I think a lot of times what keeps them from even getting started is feeling like, oh, it's too late, or I can't really make a difference. And just that reminder of, hey, if we started today, whether it's a day or it's 30 days, who cares? Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. so many opportunities to improve by getting information and then, you know, being able to make the right choices. So I, I just wanted to, you know, emphasize that because I, I feel like a lot of people, they feel under it and they don't know how, they don't think they can ever get on top of it. Yeah, that's a very negative, pernicious thought. I, I agree with that sentiment completely. 
uh, we need to reject it. Uh, the body wants to be whole and it wants to seek homeostasis. And so often it's simply a matter of removing the noxious stimulus, removing the thing that's hurting. But of course, that's half the battle, right? It's knowing what is hurting your body. And that, that is tricky. It's difficult to really put a fine, uh, put the finger on that and identify the problem sometimes. But yes, the body can recover remarkably quickly, especially the intestines, which are one of the more dynamic or what we call plastic tissues in the body. The intestines can, they, they, those cells grow so quickly um, for better and for worse. For worse, that's one of the reasons why gut related cancers like colon cancer is one of the most common because those are cells that just want to grow. But on the good side, these are cells that can, if there's any kind of damage, like a scab on the intestine, like through ulcerative colitis, it can heal in just in days. The intestines just recover so quickly. It's so funny. Like, you know, a lot of people complain about like, oh, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome and all these things. I mean, I know you, everyone is different, but are these things that you feel like if people made some really just more informed choices and stuck to it, that they would see a, a pretty drastic improvement, pretty, maybe a lot quicker than they even realize? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Resoundingly. Uh, as a scientist, I like to try to be careful no, when I, I, know, when I, I speak know, to these I, kinds of things. I mean, no, but in this case, in this case, my answer, even while being careful is a resounding yes. Um, the evidence is so clear that someone can start to experience benefits within 24 hours. Uh, it's so dramatic. So yes, anyone who has what they think is a chronic lifelong intestinal problem, my very, very strong advice is to really scrutinize your diet. Try something for a week. And, and, and usually, Gabby, the fact is, usually it's some kind of plant matter that they're responding negatively to. And that the more they are careful with their plants, especially grains to varying degrees, and then maybe certain, certain kinds of vegetables, the way they, the degree to which they're careful with those um, noxious agents, that will directly improve the gut health. And that sounds controversial, I know, but if you think about across the globe, if we dropped someone in a forest, it's filled with plants and none of them they can live on. Either it gives them no, ben no benefit or the plants are actively going to kill them. I mean, we know that some plants are poisonous and harmful, and that's the vast majority of plants. In our, in our wisdom, we've happened to find the plants that appear to have the lowest amount of harmful molecules and the highest amount of seemingly beneficial molecules. And I don't begrudge the human species from doing that, not at all. But it shouldn't surprise us that plants who uh, have no obvious defense mechanism have other defenses um, that try to discourage us from eating them. And in some and I hate the way that someone might misinterpret this to say that I'm declaring war on all plant. I'm not saying that at all. But in my experience, that is typically what a person has to be careful with. And that when they are careful with some of these things, they will experience the greatest benefit to their and the, to their gut health. So we we know that, and you mentioned it. There, there there can be environmental things, but for now, because we can't control it, right? I can't control the air and not necessarily all mm -hmm. the water I'm drinking. I can control some of it. You know, you can control what things you're putting on your skin and and things like that. But mm -hmm. we live in a world that there's there's stuff that we have to contend with. So maybe we can just isolate it to what I'm eating and drinking for the sake of keeping it simple. 
um, my choices in moving my body or not moving my body as far as gut health. Now, when we talk about inflammation, um, or excuse me, infl- when we talk about it, things impacting inflammation, would somebody, so you have these tests, but are there, when people think of inflammation, what, what actually ha- is happening in the body when we're overreacting, when we're in this chronic inflammation? Yeah, it's a good question. Getting down to basics. I love it. Yeah. So I mentioned C-reactive protein. Mm-hmm. C-reactive protein is part of a family of molecules called cytokines. A cytokine is an, an immune-related um, molecule. And these mo- and there are there are many, many, many of them. C-reactive protein has just become one of the most famous. But there are others that I would argue are actually more relevant to inflammation, like TNF-alpha or interleukin-1 beta. And there are there are truly dozens, hundreds of these molecules that both promote inflammation and turn down inflammation. And they all sort of work in concert when it comes to a healthy functioning body. In the case of chronic inflammation, like the subclinical cr- chronic inflammation we've been talking about, the molecules that are promoting inflammation are winning the war. And all of these cytokines come from Generally, they come from immune cells, lymphocytes and leukocytes and macrophages, most especially. Um, and, and these are molecules, especially macrophages, that will engulf harmful um, harmful molecules. Or so these are cells, rather macrophages. They are called phagocytes, and uh, a phage will be is something that eats something else. And so, for example, when we talked about leaky gut, and, and the gaps are bigger. There are pieces of bacteria that are coming from the gut into the bloodstream, into the, into the body. The macrophage will sense those and eat them. And while it eats that, that molecule that shouldn't be there, you know, defending the body, you know, the macrophage and the immune system will recognize something and say, you don't belong here, so we're going to get rid of you. When the macrophage eats this, along with some other cells that help it, Depending on the invasion and the extent of the invasion, in other words, how many of these harmful invaders are there, the macrophage will start to release a trail of breadcrumbs through the bloodstream, which is basically the cry for help. It's the rallying cry. It's the trumpets calling the other soldiers to, to battle. And now the other, other, other macrophages and will follow those cells to know where the damage is. And where to, you know, normally, when, when you have a, like a wound, it's direct, and we know right here is the fight. Mm. When it comes to these harmful molecules just flowing through the bloodstream, well, it's much, much harder, of course. And then it, it's much harder to win the war because it's happening all over the body. But in this case, those little breadcrumbs that are calling out to other immune cells for help, those are cytokines. That's how we measure inflammation in the body. So when someone's measuring their C-reactive protein or any of these other cytokines I just mentioned, they're measuring the the, the breadcrumbs, the call for help, that's exactly what those molecules are. But as a result, they are an indicator of the war, the, you know, the inflammation, the, the status of inflammation within the body. Now, earlier I'd alluded to the fat cells. This is a nice opportunity for me just to mention this and put a nice bow on it. But while these immune cells are generally the source of these cytokines, especially pro-inflammatory cytokines like C-reactive protein and TNF-alpha, so are fat cells where there's this, and again, this is what got me obsessed with metabolism in the very first place. 
this union of the immune system and the metabolic systems and the implication that this is the cause of prediabetes and insulin resistance, you know, the root of all, almost all chronic problems, certainly all metabolic problems. But fat cells, when they start to get too big, not when we have too much fat, it's not the same thing. You know, if you have two guys who are college roommates and they get together 10 years later and they both gained 50 pounds, which isn't too uncommon nowadays, how they've gained that 50 pounds matters more than actually how much fat they gained. And, and so it's more than the mass that you've gained, it's how have you gained it? Namely, what is the size of your fat cell? And on one hand, you could have one of these fellows who gained his 50 pounds of fat by having every individual fat cell start replicating. And so the size of each fat cell is quite modest. He just has a lot more fat cells. In contrast, and this is how most people get fat, the number of fat cells he had is set in the other guy, but his fat cells are each getting much, much bigger. Indeed, much bigger, where you have fat cells that can get 10 to 20 times larger than when they're in their small kind of original state. And there's no other cell in the body that is capable of that much growth. But as the cell is undergoing what's called hypertrophy, where it's getting every individual fat cell is getting really big, as opposed to hyperplasia, where the size of the fat cell is quite modest, but they're multiplying, in the case of hypertrophy, the fat cell begins to reach a point of maximum dimension. It can't get any bigger. At the same time as it's reaching the point of maximum dimension and bringing up inflammation now, the, the fat cells begin pushing each other further and further away from capillaries or from the blood vessels. And a cell needs to be within just a few micrometers of a blood vessel, of a capillary, in order to exchange nutrients and exchange you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide. The problem is these big swollen fat cells will be 20 or 30 micrometers. So they are 10 times the size of what it should be to be in close proximity to the capillary. And so they begin pushing each other as they're swelling and getting bigger further and further away from the blood vessel. In the process of doing this, they become, they start to suffocate, for lack of a better word, the better word being they become hypoxic. Hypoxic referring to the fact that they're becoming deficient in oxygen as they get pushed too far from the blood vessel, as they hypertrophy. Well, one of the many effects of these cytokines, some of them, are to induce the synthesis of new blood vessels. That's helpful when you're trying to heal an area, right? And when it comes to normal um, inflammation to recover, if you have a wound or an infection on your arm, if you can stimulate new blood vessels to the area, you get more immune cells to the area, and you can recover and heal all the damage faster. In this case, um, what the swelling hypertrophied fat cell is doing, it's dumping out these pro-inflammatory cytokines because it's hoping to stimulate the growth of new capillaries, which is a nice outcome, but in the process, unbeknownst to the hypertrophic fat cell who's just trying to survive, it's increasing inflammation from head to toe in the rest of the body as all of these molecules are just now flowing through the blood. So what the hypertrophic fat cell is doing to try to prevent itself from suffocating, which would be very bad if a cell suffocates or dies from hypoxia, it's a very messy process called necrosis. In order to prevent cell death, it will release these. But again, the, the, the innocent bystander is the rest of the body. And when you start increasing inflammation, you have 
what I can speak to with some very high authority is you start, you now start to get insulin resistant. And insulin resistance is one of the most common, or I would say most relevant metabolic consequence to inflammation. So as much as we think of inflammation as just dealing with immunity, no, these two fundamental processes in the body, namely immunity and metabolism, that the human body, every organism needs to survive, um, they have an, an enormous overlap. They work together in order to ensure normal homeostasis. But when, when one, when you are overnourished, if you will, fat, fat cells, oddly, it results in an overimmune response. So too much of a metabolic state, you know, fat cells that are too big, ends up leading to too much of an immune response. In other words, fat cells releasing immune molecules, cytokines, almost as if it's fighting an infection that's not really there, but all in an effort. I mean, we have to have some sympathy for the fat cell because all of right. this it's doing just to try to ensure its own survival. So, you know, when I hear this, it makes me go back because I, I always believe in, in kind of the principles of things and trying to practice those because, uh, you know, at, at the top of things, that there's sometimes so many variables that it does feel overwhelming instead of focusing on, okay, what are the principles? And, you know, you are, you are based on, I think what your interests are, it's like insulin sensitivity, protect it, defend it, have it, keep it forever. <laughs> if you, and let's talk about, cause I, I think the way our food system is set up, it is not, you have to literally be vigilant about what you're consuming because these these sneaky things are in everything. Even when we're trying to make conscious choices, and mm -hmm. um, and now everyone we know is pre-diabetic or diabetic. It doesn't mean you have to be overweight any longer because of you know this this system that we're in. So let's let's go there because now you have glucose monitors which you know, I learned from you just because your glucose drops doesn't mean that actually your insulin, um, mm -hmm. that you've, you know, regained some kind of insulin sensitivity. So maybe we could, we could go back to the deeper principle, which is ultimately insulin sensitivity versus chronic inflammation. Because to me, it feels like if I can manage maintaining that insulin sensitivity, I might have a better fighting chance from that vantage point. The, mm -hmm. the only other caveat I want to ask you though is stress. Mm. Yeah. Because Oh, I love this. So yeah. with stress though, because that's sort of this we all process stress differently. We all have different types of stress. This is something that impacts in chronic inflammation, does it not? And does that also impact your ability to stay or your the capacity for insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Gabby, you're you're clever enough that this was probably intentional. But if it was all accidental, then it's remarkable. So what we are doing here is sort of skirting around the edges of identifying the origins of insulin resistance, the most common health problem, literally in the world. And I don't use the word literally too liberally. I mean it. Yeah. It is literally the most common health problem worldwide. Inflammation is one of what I call the the primary causes of insulin resistance. So on its own, independent of any other variable, inflammation can cause insulin resistance. The other one is stress. Stress is an independent variable of insulin resistance. Now, paradoxically, the 
Well, let me define stress, first of all, then I'll mention the paradox, and then I'll go further. So stress is, I define stress as a professor who teaches a graduate class in endocrinology or hormones as a state of elevated stress hormones. That is cortisol and adrenaline, or more accurately, or more commonly referred to as epinephrine. So cortisol and adrenaline are the two stress hormones. Now, that does not mean that either is bad. They're both utterly essential for normal human function, just like inflammation is. But just like inflammation, when there's too much of it, now we start to get a problem. Now, um, cortisol and adrenaline have almost nothing in common. And I make a point of teaching these ideas. They come from different cells. They, they are very, they're, they're created very differently. They move through the blood very differently. They act on cells very differently. They have nothing in common save they both want to increase glucose and do so dramatically. So anytime cortisol and epinephrine are elevated, they are, or adrenaline, they're pushing glucose up. Of course, that puts them at odds with the hormone insulin, whose most famous job is to lower glucose. So it's no surprise then that in humans, in, in rodents, in cells, if you treat cells with cortisol, they become insulin resistant. Insulin can't work as well. If you treat cells or the human body has higher epinephrine, if you infuse a little epinephrine and then test how responsive they are to insulin, they will be significantly less responsive to insulin because those hormones don't want insulin to work. They want to increase blood glucose to run away from the bear, you know, or whatever the danger may be in that stressful situation. Insulin wants to lower the glucose. So again, by by uh, kind of using uh, glucose as the thing that they're fighting over, these stress hormones will make the body insulin resistant in an effort to try to have their way by pushing glucose up. So, but the question is then how, so you can get them measured, um, of course, at a blood test. Uh, cortisol more commonly is measured than epinephrine would be, but both can be easily measured. But why are they up? When we spoke about inflammation, we were very justified in spending time on talking about environmental triggers. In this case, it's not so much an environmental trigger, but there's still a stimulus. And the mo I submit that the most common is sleep deprivation. That as much as there are numerous stressors in our life, and everything to a degree is a stress, is a stressor from, from the kind of difficult to define um, emotional stress to the very easily defined of stress of illness or overtraining, you know, someone's working out too much, all of those are stress. But I believe the most common is insufficient sleep, where it has been, there are multiple human studies to show even one night of sleep deprivation will increase the stress hormones, and it's the stress hormones that are inducing this demonstrable insulin resistance the next day. And you, we quantify, it is truly measurable, one bad night of sleep, you will be insulin resistant the next day, and it's because the stress hormones remain elevated. That was a stress. Thankfully, it's an acute stress, and one good night of sleep can resolve the problem. This podcast is brought to you by Babbel. I don't know about you, but every time I travel, I kick myself that I haven't spent more time learning whatever language it is in the place that I'm visiting. It's like you want to connect with the people in a real way. Well, immersion, you know, that's the best way. 
but most of us can't move somewhere and, and, you know, live there and learn the language, even though that's number one. But number two is with Babbel. And the reason that is, is first of all, they have, it's really quick. They've got 10 minute lessons and, but they're handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. But what I love about it is it's designed by real people for real conversations. It's like, listen, we all want to know, like, talk about food and directions and things like that. And Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations and delivered with conversation-based teaching. So you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. And that's the other thing I love is just combining that because you think, okay, maybe using a trip that you have planned or getting together with family somewhere, using that as your motivation to get going. And you don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that maybe don't really even help you you know, speak a new language. In fact, a study showed, there was one study, they did studies at Yale, Michigan State, that Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours, that's nothing, is equivalent to a full semester at college. They've got over 16 million subscribers sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. So here's the incredible offer for a special limited-time deal for our listeners right now. You can get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for my listeners at babbel.com slash Gabby. So to get 50% off at babbel.com slash Gabby, that's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash Gabby. Some rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Ritual. I've personally been using Ritual for over three years. I really appreciate this brand and they have a great offer for you today. So did you know, I just found this out, that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? Well, the exciting thing is now you have companies like Ritual coming in and saying, all right, we want to know. They conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. And guess what the results were? It increases vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41%. And that was just in 12 weeks. The other incredible thing about them is all of their multivitamins are made with high quality and traceable key nutrients in clean bioavailable forms, which means your body can actually absorb the nutrients. And with nine key nutrients in just two capsules per day, their unique beadlet the way they do it, it's time release. So whether you take it on an empty stomach or you have food, it will never upset your stomach. And all of their ingredients are soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. I know that it's hard to figure out like, hey, what will my body be able to use? Where do these ingredients come from? Everything is traceable and they do all their due diligence. And a nice little bonus is it has a minty aftertaste after you take the vitamin. Ritual is all about data and facts. And if you want to get to know your nutrients on a deeper level with 20% off during your first month, all you have to do is visit ritual.com slash Gabby to start your ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash Gabby. Do you think, and this is just an off the path question, because when I think about it, 
if a woman is going through menopause because they have their hormones are changing and they don't have sometimes the the hormones needed for like a really good night's sleep because I have a lot of friends that are like, I'm eating air and I'm gaining weight. Um, do you think mm. that part of that is this lack of sleep? It's like, yes, your hormones are changing, but now you're not sleeping because of these changes. And then maybe the weight starts to march on a little bit. Uh, do you, do you think that those things are, are connected? Because I think we accept like it used to be a prize. Like I don't need to sleep. I think we've, mm. we, the conversation is now like, Hey, listen, it, if it impacts your health in every level, like you need to sleep. It's the only time you recover. But it also as a bonus part of that is, do we think that this is why a lot of women will experience this weight gain possibly, um, in it, you know, in addition to kind of some other changes, I'm not saying there's not a lot of changes, but I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. So the degree to which sleep poor sleep would contribute to the weight gain from menopause. I don't yeah. know. Um, I don't know about that. Now, because I don't like saying, I don't know, it doesn't suit my professor mentality particularly well. Let me just fill that answer in sure. a little bit by stating much of the weight gain that she would experience, that a woman will experience is because of the loss of um, estrogens where estrogens, and there's no, there's no hormone called estrogen. So I make a point of using the plural term estrogen isn't a thing. There are the estrogens, which is a small family of the prototypical female sex hormones. Estrogens are very fat helpful. They, they yeah. stimulate um, this, this high degree of fat turnover in the woman's body. Most women don't realize that she's burning more fat per unit, per minute than her like per, as, a, as a function of her body mass than her male counterpart is. Women burn more fat than men do at, at kind of any moment. That's very well documented, very well known. And the sex hormones, estrogens play a part of this. Now, she's putting in more fat at the same time, and, and progesterone contributes to that effect particularly, but she's turning over, she's burning a lot of fat and putting fat in. But as she starts to lose those sex hormones, that equation starts to get un unbalanced where, you know, prior to that, she's burning a lot of fat, but she's putting in fat in those fat cells at this kind of the same rate, if you will. Once you lose the sex hormones, the equation starts to tip and the amount of fat being broken down through lipolysis, fat breakdown, what I'm saying fat burning, although it's not technically right. fat burning, um, the input is now overwhelming the output. Now, having said that, um, let's, I'll make one subtle attempt, not subtle attempt to, to, int to bring sleep back into it, which is the most common, one of the most common causes of poor sleep is going to bed in a state of hyperglycemia mm. where she may be noticing also because of a change in, in hormones that she wants to eat and, and eat in the evening, you know, something sweet and gooey or salty and crunchy. And that's what most people are craving. If, if she has had such a change in her life that she's now indulging more in the evening where her blood sugar levels are elevated, not to mention the fact that they will naturally be more elevated as her fat burning is going down and her fat cells are getting larger, she's becoming insulin resistant and that contributes to higher glucose. But if you go to bed with high glucose, your body temperature will be significantly higher um, and you activate your sympathetic immune system. Most people don't appreciate this. They think they can't sleep because they're anxious they're hot, 
their heart is beating harder and faster. Anxiety has nothing to do with it. It's the fact that you went to bed hyperglycemic. And if you go to bed hyperglycemic, diabetics know this. This is well documented. If you go to bed hyperglycemic, or anytime you're hyperglycemic, you activate your sympathetic nervous system. And that is the worst time to have your fight or flight uh, immune system, uh, sorry, nervous system turned on. Fight or flight when you're trying to rest or digest, that is the worst moment for it. When you're going to bed, you want your parasympathetic nervous system to dominate. And you cannot have that happen if you have induced hyperglycemia because of what you just ate. So anyway, with menopause, it's possible that the overall change is making it easier for her to be hyperglycemic. And that would definitely impact sleep. But we don't even need to invoke sleep. Menopause is such a, a remarkable change in sex hormones, many of which are helpful. I mean, the contribution of which is helpful to her metabolic function and her fat burning, that as she starts to lose those, it just makes it much easier to store fat. So if I'm, a, if let's say I'm uber on it and high performance person. And so I know that when I get up in the morning, my cortisol levels are the highest throughout the day, hopefully, right? Like if we're doing it the right mm-hmm. way, we're in the right cycle. Yeah. Given that reality, then is it, is sort of it's is it would it be better to consume really more just fats and proteins because your insulin sensitivity is less or it does that does that not really play a a factor like if someone's going hey i really want to dial this in would that be the time to really stay away from uh anything in the morning compete with uh what my body was naturally doing with high cortisol yeah, you mean in the morning? Yeah. Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, if someone eats if someone were to eat the exact same meal like a bowl of cereal, eat a bowl of cereal in the morning or eat a bowl of cereal in the evening, you will have a higher insulin response to that cereal in the morning. In fact, you could ask any type 1 diabetic and I do this with my college aged with my students in in class I will pose this, "Hey, do I have any type 1 diabetics?" and they will say, oh yeah, I'll need two times more insulin if I eat that same bowl of cereal in the evening. I'm sorry, in the morning than, than in the evening. So yeah, when you have the, that morning period uh, where you're just kind of coming online, your brain is coming online, cortisol is naturally higher. The body wants glucose levels to be naturally higher. And so it becomes insulin resistant. That is not a good time to indulge. Of course, unfortunately, I just got done elaborating how going to bed in a hyperglycemic state is the worst thing you can do for your sleep. So my philosophy on indulging or just eating in general, do everything you can to stack the majority of your calories in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. If you can condense much of what you eat to the middle of the day and you spare the metabolic sort of challenge from the morning or the evening, Mm -hmm. you will be much, much better off than, than, than otherwise. So try to condense that's generally my, you know, as a kind of middle-aged guy, the way I have chosen to incorporate everything I know into my daily life, personally, not, and I don't want to get it too far ahead of us ourselves, uh, but I, I generally fast through breakfast unless I've had a very hard workout the day before, then I'll eat like bacon and eggs or something. Then um, I try to stack a lot of my calories. I have a big, very, very filling lunch and then a modest dinner with the family. Right. Um, I really do my best not to really indulge and binge for dinner. I don't want to go to bed really, really full and hyperglycemic. So my recommendation is very, very strongly stack it to the middle of the day and keep the ends of the day, the bookend meals, uh, smaller. 
Right. And, and there is, you know, a lot of information out there that if you're a very high performing female that they, you know, we perform better fed, but having said that we can still get that in the, in the middle of the day, because one thing I really appreciate, you talk about fasting being just such a genius way and easy way to start to dial in your insulin sensitivity. And I, I feel like it's first things first, you know, for me, if I was, if I'm a training hard, which I do when I'm doing all these things, but I was trying to navigate chronic inflammation and dialing in my insulin sensitivity, I would use fasting as a tool. So I want to remind people, and let me ask you, I've heard that also directly after a pretty hard workout, and I don't mean a walk around the block, that if you were going to have something that had a little more glucose, that that actually would be the better time because the body is sort of in a, in a, place that they can absorb it well with muscle tissue is that yeah do you are you do you agree with that yeah that's a great question the 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 degree to which i agree with it is is context how dependent hard? How hard? that's a complicated answer did you really train yeah. or did you just say i had i trained really hard <laughs> right well and and what are your outcomes like who's the person like right. if we are talking gabby reese who is metabolically sound and is working out hard I would say, hey, high five, that's a great way to do okay. it. There's no question your muscles are hungrier and they will readily pull in that glucose. However, speaking of women, there was a study published a number of years ago that took uh, generally sedentary women, had them exercise, and documented that over the period of exercising, insulin sensitivity got better. That's no surprise. However, when they would undergo an exercise session and end their exercise session with a bunch of glucose or, or carbs, they undid the insulin sensitivity over the next 24 hours that the exercise actually gave. So if a person, if, if we're talking to someone who is a high performing athlete, I'd say no problem, do it. You have a lot of wiggle room. But if we're talking to an overweight woman who's pre-diabetic or already diabetic, and, and her primary outcome is to improve her insulin sensitivity, then I would say don't. But, but that's, it's such a pernicious idea though, Gabby, right? We, we, we are, we are told, oh, you're walking on the treadmill. Um, you need your, your sugary sports drink, or you, you just got done working out. You need to go get a fruit smoothie. Um, and, and you undo all of the insulin sensitizing benefit of the exercise itself. And so if insulin sensitivity is the primary outcome in someone who, especially if they have, if they're insulin resistant, then I'd say, don't do it. Yep. I, I appreciate that that uh, differentiating even listen even for somebody who's metabolically sound like me i'm really going to ultimately benefit myself better with some kind of protein or and healthy fat after yep um so i, I think that's always a, a good reminder Let, let's if we could kind of quickly cuz really the glucose monitor is a big thing and i do appreciate that someone can eat a food and they real and their friend doesn't react they they don't mm -hmm. get a glucose spike they start to understand like oh this is how my body works that I like that component of it, but it is not still the end all be all to say that you're, that you're insulin, you're staying tuned up in your insulin sensitivity. Is that a, is that fair to say? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's one of the great missions of mine is to help people, especially clinicians, especially doctors and nurses to understand the difference between glucose and insulin, because even these very, very well-trained individuals even though they know these are different molecules, they're different things, but we, we equate the two so completely that I've had conversations with physicians where 
I will say, in order to understand insulin resistance, you need to measure the insulin. And they will say, well, we don't need to because we measure the glucose. And then I will say, no, you can have normal glucose and high insulin. And they will say, no, we know insulin's not high because glucose isn't high. It's this idea, it becomes a circular weird argument where people, again, they, they, they look at insulin and glucose and think it's a one-to-one, that they are always lockstep holding hands. And that is absolutely false. Insulin resistance in its earliest pre-diabetic stage is a state where there's a lot more insulin in the body and it needs we need a lot more insulin insulin's working a lot harder because it's not working particularly well it's become less efficient in part or, or it's become less efficient partly in its effect to control glucose and so insulin normally you would need very little insulin to result in a normal glucose level but to keep the glucose normal as the insulin isn't working very well, you need more and more and more insulin. This gives us a lot of daylight between the two. And it's a concept, Gabby, truly, at the end of my career, if I can look back and see that I've influenced clinicians um, to measure insulin, to focus on insulin, I will consider myself as, as having had some impact outside the home, You know, where, where things really matter in the home. If I want to have any impact outside of my home, I hope it is that people will start measuring insulin more. And to measure insulin, we need to have clinicians and patients appreciate the fact that it is not the same as glucose. That as valuable as a continuous glucose monitor is, and I firmly believe it is, it's not that we're gonna see a difference at the fasting level, but the CGM is helpful because it gives us such a dynamic response that if you and your sibling are eating something, you're eating a sandwich and with you know you got a couple pieces of bread, and you see that your glucose spikes to over 200 and stays, it takes three hours to get back down to under 100, and your sibling went up and down mm. and it was back down to 80 in 90 minutes, that is valuable. That suggests that your insulin, you needed a lot more and the insulin didn't work particularly well, which is, of course, a reflection of insulin resistance. And people are going to hear this and go, great, now how am I going to man- how am I going to measure uh, my, my insulin? <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's back to the when you asked about C- CRP yeah. and C-reactive protein getting it measured. That's an easier battle. Yeah. Someone will have a much easier time getting CRP measured because of the implication of it being relevant to a heart attack and heart health right. than they will getting insulin measured. That's where there is a, a much we need much more education and much greater push and loud voices in order to encourage people to get their insulin measured. It's not easy to do. Unfortunately, insurance won't often pay for it. But nice, thankfully, people can go to labs now, independent labs like um, LabCorp, and you can get your insulin, your blood drawn and insulin measured for about $20. Okay. So, and that's what I like. Like, do you think for, let's say, let's call them householder, someone who's like, they're just doing their best, you know, it's not an, it's not, they're not a triathlete or anything. Mm -hmm. Would you say, hey, they're on this new quest and, um, they're really trying to get on top of it. Would you go there and do it sort of like once every three months and just see if you're impacting these markers or would that be a good kind of starting point? What I think once you have things managed, you just do these check-ins. But let's say in the beginning when someone's saying, okay, you know what, I've got to get on top of this. Do you mm-hmm. think that that would be a reasonable request of them? Oh, oh for sure. I mean, I would... I would definitely say go get it as soon as you can. Right. 
And then the degree to which you can repeat it as a follow-up to test how well your intervention is working, well, that's just that's icing on the cake. That that is genius if you can get it done. Now, but I, I wanna I wanna have someone hear this part of the conversation and have the most actionable intel possible. So yes, certainly by all means try to get your insulin measured. Assuming you can't, look at the most recent blood test you have had. And we always will measure two things. We always measure all kinds of things, but we always get two lipid measurements, your triglyceride number and your HDL number. Oh, every blood test, everyone listening, if they can go to any recent blood test, even the most basic blood test will measure triglycerides and HDL cholesterol. On their own, they have limited value when it comes to indicating insulin resistance. Together, they, have, they become a very, very good surrogate. Take the triglyceride number in the numerator divided by HDL cholesterol in the denominator. So triglycerides divided by HDL. And there is some ethnic differences here. There's some differentials, no surprise. You know, races have, um, you know, different ethnicities have different kind of um, different sort of met metabolic state. But for Caucasians and Asians, let's just start there because it's in the middle. If you're Caucasian or Asian, primarily, as, as, as an ethnicity, you want that triglyceride to HDL ratio to be around 1.5. If it's, well, you want it to be less than 1.5, I should say, to clarify. If it's less than 1.5, that's a good sign that you're likely insulin sensitive. If you are Hispanic, then that number, you want it to be less than around two. There's, you know, it's naturally a little higher, just normally, just one of the differences across ethnicities. If you're black, you want that number to be closer to one and lower. So there's the differences. So right. let's just pick middle of the road. Uh, less than around 1.5, generally, that's a good sign that you're insulin sensitive. And again, any blood test will have measured this. And if, if, if anyone listening, if you don't have that blood test with you, call your doctor's office and say, can you just tell me what my numbers were at my last visit? They will always have measured triglyceride and HDL numbers. Great. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit uh, right now. I, I just want to sort of go over, you know, we talk about the certain oils. So would it be safe to say sticking towards olive oils, avocado oil, and coconut oil? It, and wait, what's the other one? Macadamia nut oil, I think comes out like really, and it doesn't go rancid or something like that. But these are oils that we could tend towards. And that if we go to our grocery store, what are, the, are there secret words for oils that then you can't even tell what it is in these salad dressings? It, or is it just, are we avoiding sunflower, safflower, canola, vegetable? I mean, these are the ones that we just Make your dressing at home, I think, would save you just a lot of hassle. I know it's a pain in the butt, and if you're traveling and you're trying to eat mm -hmm. well, I would just say get olive oil. And even that, they they cut with other things. I mean, they're sometimes <laughs> they, it's yeah. like this is what I mean. It's very hard for people because even when they're trying, it's like oh, they cut it with a different oil because it's less expensive. So obviously, the darker the color the better, typically, things mm -hmm. like that. So fruit juice, one of your favorite things in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're going to trigger me. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I, I just want to bring it up to top of pile because someone that goes, oh, I'm not having a soda because we, we, we've gotten that. I'm not having a diet soda because, by the way, people, that's not working either. I'm going to have a fruit juice. Um, 
pulp, no pulp, do you care? Is it just a no-go? Don't drink it. Yeah, yeah. So let me, Gabby, pardon me, but before I mention fruit juice, I just have to add my thoughts on on the vegetable oils. Yeah, so, but typically if someone's going to the grocery store, you do need to look at the label. The most they will hide the term is by calling it vegetable oil. If you see vegetable oil, it is a refined seed oil. That's just a more elegant and totally inaccurate term. There's nothing vegetable about these. They're from seeds. And so soybean oil is the most common, but it's so insidious that you're looking for some mayonnaise. Like just the other day for 4th of July, we, my wife, Cheryl, was preparing some kind of salad of some kind and she needed mayonnaise. And so I'm at the grocery store knowing what I know, I'm looking at all the mayo and I see one that says it's olive oil based mayonnaise. And I think, oh, that's clever. Wonderful. That would work. I turn it over and the first ingredient is soybean oil, which is the most common overwhelmingly of all of them. In addition to the ones you mentioned, soybean oil is absolutely number one. And then it was olive oil. So there's less olive oil in it than soybean oil, but they call it soybean oil mayo. And we found one that was avocado oil. So when it comes to fats, I look at fats very favorably. My thought is animal fats, fine, eat them. I'm good with that. We've been eating animal fats for since the beginning of the human species, however we came to be who we are. And indeed, there are some theories of evolution that claim that we became humans with big brains and small guts because we ate fat anim- from animals. That's one of the theories of evolution among the many theories. And then alternatively, so animal fats and fruit fats especially. And, and that's where we get the, the fats from the flesh of the fruit, coconuts, avocados, olives. You know, that, that's all fine. Enjoy them liberally. Now, um, fruit juice. I consider the push for fruit juice to be one of the great wins of modern marketing and one of the great lies where where you have parents with the best of intentions giving their kid fruit juice, truly thinking that they're doing their child a favor or doing themselves a favor, and there's nothing favorable about it. Um, fruit juice in, in this this pure fructose that you're getting, there was it, it has it will it has more sugar like blueberry juice has more sugar than than Coke does. Like when you actually quantify the amount of like right. a simple carbohydrate that you're getting into the bloodstream. So fruit juice, I'm I'm not an advocate of at all. And in my family, we just don't buy it. We don't drink it. If the kids get it, it's very infrequent, and it's it's known that it's an indulgence, and we're out to eat, and they got a glass of orange juice or something. We I just Thankfully, we were able to create a culture in the home where that's just not a thing, that it's milk or water. But I don't mean to say that fruit is bad. Right. So I don't want anyone to misunderstand me. I look at fruit very, very favorably. Enjoy fruit. Eat it. Enjoy it. Whole fruit. But don't drink it. So eat your fruit. Don't drink it. Speaking of leaky gut, fructose will increase the gap between the cell junctions. So it will increase leaky gut. It will increase the rate at which this bacterial um, remnant called LPS, fructose will increase LPS invasion, which is a piece of bacteria from your gut. It will increase the invasion from the gut into the bloodstream. So fructose is another thing, speaking of leaky gut, that will compromise the integrity of the gut barrier. Um, So when when you want to start drinking, if you're inclined to drink it, and I get it, it's delicious, don't. At the at a minimum, think of think of your gut. Think of how much sugar is going to hit your bloodstream. Think of what your liver has to do with that. Being one of the very few tissues that can metabolize fructose, and then it it almost treats the fructose like it does alcohol, 
where once upon a time, if someone had fatty liver disease, it was because they were alcoholic right. and they drank so much alcohol and alcohol is metabolized by the liver. Now, however, in the past 60, 70 years, you, we, we gave birth to this new type of fatty liver disease called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, where it's not the alcohol anymore, it's the fructose, it's the fruit juice, because fructose, like alcohol, is almost entirely metabolized by the liver, and when the liver gets too much of it, it turns it into fat. Yeah. So it's not popular, but let's just re revisit. <sighs> It's one of the most unpopular things I ever say in these conversations, but that alcohol is not only not good for your insulin resistance, but it's not good for your gut either. No. You mentioned vaping and that's and smoking and these things are not good. But also, and these are things that people take on a regular basis, um, Advil and you know, Tylenol. Mm -hmm. These are things that are very, very tough on your microbiome. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Advil. Yeah, these these type of those class of medications called NSAIDs, N S A I D S, non steroidal anti inflammatory. They activate what's called the COX. Oh, they, sorry, they inhibit the cyclooxygenase pathway, COX C O X pathway, and that that is how they inhibit inflammation. But these are broad. They they are not specific. And the cyclooxygenase pathway, while one part of the pathway is involved in inflammation, the other part of the pathway is involved in the production of mucus to line the intestines, to protect the intestines. It's also involved in kidney function and filtering molecules from the blood to be spilled into the urine. So the, the COX pathway is very, very big and touches on an enormous amount of things. These drugs are very nonspecific. They inhibit all of it. And so you need to use them very judiciously. And that's why it'll tell you on the on the, the label on the pill bottle, it'll say if you have gut problems, you know, if you see blood in your stool, you know, stop taking this because it's damaging your intestines at the same time. So you need to be you definitely need to be careful with those. Yeah. So for you personally, is there do you like any supplements to support I mean, okay, there's prebiotics, probiotics, things like that for not only gut health, but is there things that actually help maintain or help with staying insulin sensitive? Or, I mm -hmm. don't even know if that's a, I mean, would that be things that are anti-inflammatory like curcumin and things like that? Like, are there supplements that you like to really help people that are thinking about this part of their health? Yeah. Yeah, we can. Yeah, there are. Um, I, I will start, I will preface my answer by just stating as much as there are these small things that we can insert in a diet, mm -hmm. which, which have been shown to improve insulin sensitivity for, for multiple reasons or through multiple mechanisms, I need to just pre, have a prelude to that by stating if your macronutrients are managed, then these things will matter very little. Right. So your macros, macros matter most, and, and that is control carbohydrates you know, be smart, fruits and vegetables, eat them, be careful with all the rest, prioritize protein, especially from good animal sources, and don't fear fat. And, and just to mention this, those, that is an idea that I believe so strongly that I, working with some family members, we created a meal replacement shake that was designed specifically on those three pillars. I will just emphasize, I'll point people to the website. Yeah. Go, to, go to this website, please get health, and health is HLTH, so get then hlth.com 
and you can learn all about the meal replacement shake built on those three ideas. So managing your macros matters most. And now you can look at these extras. And there are they, these are things like apple cider vinegar. Apple cider vinegar is tremendously effective at improving insulin sensitivity and directly mitigating the glucose spike from starchy foods. So if someone's going to know that they're going to indulge in, in some treat that's going to spike your glucose and your insulin, have a little bit of apple cider vinegar, mix it up in some water, just if you can, two tablespoons, and you will offset that glycemic bump by up to 30 or so percent. I mean, it's a pretty significant reduction. And it's cheap. So apple cider, it's, oh, super yeah. cheap. That's right. Yep. Everyone should keep some in their fridge. Apple cider vinegar. Um, cinnamon. Cinnamon has been shown on its own to improve insulin sensitivity in diabetics. That those, there are several studies that have been shown to do that. Another supplement that you can buy over the counter or just anywhere you get supplements is inositol. Inositol has been shown to improve um, insulin resistance as well, particularly in women, particularly in women with PCOS, um, polycystic ovary syndrome, which is very much a problem of insulin resistance, and a handful of others. You mentioned some. There are a handful of these other molecules that you can insert into your diet as a supplement. Mate, um, you know, yerba mate increases fat burning and that can improve insulin sensitivity. When it comes to other things that are caffeine sources, I mean, part of the magic of mate is that yes, it has some caffeine, but it also has things like chlorogenic acids and theobromine, which help with fat burning and help with appetite. You know, they, they reduce your hunger. Um, just be careful with like straight caffeine sources, caffeine, it will increase adrenaline. And, and that is a stress. Caffeine is a stressor by just activating your body, amping it up a little bit. And I'm not, I'm not saying all caffeine is bad, but I, I would say, you know, too much is certainly bad and becomes a stress on the body, literally increasing the stress hormones. So try not to, you know, consume too much caffeine as much as we say coffee is fine. That's good. Yeah. It has those other molecules in it too. It just has a lot more caffeine than, say, something like mate does, which is relatively lower caffeine and relatively higher in those other molecules I mentioned, like chlorogenic acid stimulating fat burning or um, theobromine stimulating um, improving appetite control. Do you like you know fish oils or anything like that for? I feel like with inflammation, those things, mm -hmm. at least for me personally, I've I've really I do notice some different oh yeah 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 absolutely yeah, i'm glad you mentioned that in fact it's perfectly timed i just got done mentioning the, the cyclooxygenase pathway the cox pathway and how the problem with a lot of these anti-inflammation medications is that they block all of it well fish oils will be metabolized into a molecule these things called resolvins which will selectively blunt the inflammation while leaving the other processes of cyclooxygenase intact so I'm, I'm a very big advocate of fish oil. I, I also just add a note of caution, um, which is do your very best to make sure it is pure fish oil and that it doesn't have a soybean oil carrier. It's very, very common for there to be a little capsule that you think is all fish oil, and yet the first ingredient is soybean oil, and then it's the fish oil. If you can get one that's pure fish oil, or maybe it's fish oil with some um, something like olive oil or coconut oil, that's that's great. That's that's a great way to do it. I mean, listen, we could I could go on and on because there's so much to this. And I what I want to encourage people and I I feel like you you do this so well is 
it's it's first the things that we can control really can impact us a long way down the field. This isn't about like we have to get it perfect, but this is about making the decision to eliminate certain things and to implement certain practices. Is there any last kind of invitation that you would like to make to people? Because I know you're on a mission to, you know, get people to sort of develop this relationship with defending and protecting their insulin sensitivity, because that in itself would take care of so many of these other things we're talking about. Yeah, it would. Yeah. So definitely uh, promoting an education um, and a familiarity with insulin resistance is is my primary professional outcome. And that is because of just how prevalent it is affecting potentially up to 88% of adults in the US. And as much as we think, oh, we're the fattest and we're the sickest, we're not even in the top 20 when it comes to the prevalence of insulin resistance. Almost every country in the Middle East is worse than we are. Almost every country in Asia has statistics that are worse than us when it comes to insulin resistance. And even in our own neck of the woods, Mexico beats us uh, by quite a bit. So these are problems and they are global. And in uh, separate from just how prevalent it is, is how relevant it is, increasing the risk of every chronic disease, whether it's Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or infertility, um, insulin resistance directly contributes to these problems. So it behooves us to know what it is and where we stand with regards to it. And of course, measuring insulin is the best way to do that. But the triglyceride to HDL ratio is a very, very good surrogate. So it's it, it sort of a, a parting thought with that would be manage your macros and, and don't go to bed. This, this one isn't quite as eloquent uh, in a state of hyperglycemia. Yeah. Do everything you can to resist the indulgence in the evening. And I, and I state that emphatically because I know how hard it is that that is where the biggest gap comes from knowledge to practice that we can be fine all day controlling carbohydrates, prioritizing protein, and not fearing fat. And then the evening comes around, and then all the rules are, are, are done. We forget them all, and we are craving more than any other time. Do everything you can to control your evening. If you can win your evening meal and your evening snacking, typically you're, you've won. Yeah. You will sleep better, you'll feel better, and it just becomes self-perpetuating and reinforcing these, these good habits. I manage that by having club soda with apple cider vinegar, so sparkling water with apple cider vinegar. And I also manage it by not having the most tempting foods in the house. So my darling children <laughs> think that we don't have cereal in the house because I care so much about them. And that's part of it. We make breakfast fresh. I typically make it every morning for the kids. And a good breakfast, it's crepes or it's pancakes, it's, it's waffles. And I have my own particular version of all of those. But even still, that's what we make for breakfast every morning, omelets, scrambled eggs. So we don't have cereal in the house. And it's not because of my kids. It's because I, it's, it's like crack cocaine for dad. If there is cereal in the house, it is a Herculean effort on my part not to go and eat, literally eat myself sick on it. I have no ability to moderate. So this, uh, this kind of dietitian's mm -hmm. mantra of moderation in all things, I've always looked at that with some degree of scorn because I think to myself, tell that to an addict. Yeah. Tell a person who's addicted, moderation in all things. Tell that to a person, uh, to an alcoholic. An alcoholic would say, I, I'm not going to have any. 
And the dietitian would say, oh, well, you can have some moderation in all things. This guy, this is a person who can't moderate. When it comes to cereal, <laughs> I cannot moderate. I know this is a silly confession well, here, no. and all of it serves my, gro- my broader point of if you can control your evening, because that's when most people are at their weakest and they're most tempted, just don't have it in the house. Yeah. Don't, even, don't even bring it home um, because that's where the problem is going to arise. Well, Ben, I always really love talking to you and your passion. Can you just remind and direct people to all the places that they can find you or even products that you are <clears throat> involved with that are important to you? Right. Yeah. Thank you again. This is always enjoyable. I share that sentiment. So yeah, I mentioned this meal replacement shake that my brothers and I designed, born completely from my own frustration where I got tired of simply just giving ideas and sharing principles. Once upon a time, I thought it's enough. If someone hears these ideas, they'll have everything they need to make the change. The fact of the matter is it is difficult to put ideas into practice And so people can find this meal replacement shake that I designed at gethealthhlth.com. And I regularly am contributing blog content there about every week. So there's always a lot of educational material. A lot of the principles we discussed are outlined in my book, Why We Get Sick, which is a book all about insulin resistance. And you and I spoke more about that last time. Um, But I'm also pretty active on social media, mostly Instagram, but also Twitter, where I, I generally just try to create little sound bites of little, like a one minute lesson about human metabolism. Like one that I just shared recently documenting how even a few days of inactivity, a few days of sedentary living takes weeks to undo with regards to the insulin resistance. So it's always just move anything you can to move. That's just an example. So on on social media, people can find me at Ben Bickman uh, and that's B-I-K-M-A-N, Ben Bickman, PhD. And I want to, I'm just going to put this out for people that if they want to find out why as definitely as adults, you know, not to consume why we don't really need milk, I would invite them. And I, I still, you know, for me, dairy, okay, I, I will do it if it's whole and raw for sure. Mm-hmm. Same. But um, Same. people think, oh, I'm getting my calcium from your milk. So I want to invite them to follow you and they will learn why milk, maybe not. So. Well, milk's a food for growth. Yeah, right. we're done growing. That's what I mean. So, you but know? if you can get it fermented, <laughs> fermented, mm-hmm. and then drink it as kefir or a plain right. yogurt, and now you're doing it. And great. you're doing something. And that's good for your gut. So, uh, Ben Bickman, thank you. I look forward to the next time we talk. And, and my hope is, is that we have a lot of the information and what are the things that are keeping us from trying to implement it? And you make that seem even more achievable. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, Good, good. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you want to learn more, there is a ton of valuable information on my website. Head to the link in the show notes and click gabbyreese.com to find a full breakdown with helpful links to studies, research, books, products, and more. If you have any questions for my guests or even myself, please send them to at Gabby Reese on Instagram. If you feel inspired, please hit the follow button, leave a rating and a comment. It not only helps me, it really helps the show grow and reach new listeners. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.